Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I'm your host, Trevor Cooper, recording from the Bay Area, right here in California. I'm happy that you decided to join me. So let's begin. Since this is the first episode, I want to share a little bit about me to give this episode and this podcast some texture as we move between episodes. I'm a 35-year-old lawyer, social scientist, and emerging pastor. I practice corporate law downtown San Francisco, and with the blessing of my mother and pastor, I'm now launching a new ministry and movement called the Impact Fellowship, but we'll get into the ministry in a later episode. I love music. Music is my life. I believe if music decided to leave the earth, I would probably be in hot pursuit behind music. In particular, I enjoy R&B, gospel, jazz, and classical. Those are my favorite. I'm a proud alum of Brooklyn College. At Brooklyn, I received my BA in political science in 2007, and then my MA in urban policy in 2010. I hopped over the Hudson River and got my JD from Rutgers in 2013. And after that, I was pretty much done with school for all time. <laughs> I was born in Kingstree, South Carolina. Kingstree is a small town of about 3,000 people located about 75 miles north of Charleston, South Carolina. And we'll probably get into the historical significance and the meaning of Charleston, South Carolina, but it's an important city in the history of black people in the United States. So I was raised about 40 miles away from King Street in the city of Sumter, South Carolina. Really, Sumter is a big town of about 40,000 people located about 40 miles from the state capital, Columbia. All I'm saying is I'm a small town kind of guy and I live in the city out here on the West Coast. I'm the second of three sons by my mother, Joan. Altogether, I have about six other siblings blended in to the Cooper clan. So I'm going to call all my siblings' names, giving them their five seconds of fame and shout out, <laughs> just in case I blow up. They can never say I didn't shout them out. So I'm going to say what's up to Regina, Sonia, Justin, Curtis, Brian, and JR. I love all of you all. Thank you for everything that you've done to inspire me, to encourage me, to help me live my truth. So back to me. I was raised in a pretty conservative household, as most black Southerners. Christianity uh, was the way we were raised, and an emphasis was placed on home training. 
We'll talk a little bit more about home training later in this episode. But I knew in the third grade that I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. I don't know whether it was the combination of movies that I was watching, conversations that I heard adults having, Black History Month, but I remember being captivated by the images of the civil rights movement and the civil rights icons of the 60s. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Ralph Abernathy. I mean, the list goes on and on. Rosa Parks, all of these giants who were changers. They were change agents of their day. And they impacted me in such a way that I felt like I needed to make a difference when I became an adult. And so I landed on civil rights attorney. Now, I'll give you a little joke, but I thought Morgan Freeman was like the greatest civil rights icon based on his performance in the movie Lean on Me in 1989. I think that's when that movie came out. Morgan Freeman's Lean on Me, Joe Clark performance was like the all-time movie for me. And for some reason, that movie stuck out to me as a kid. I'm not sure where I got this particular career goal from, especially with that level of detail and specificity. But I also recall a documentary series called Eyes on the Prize. Eyes on the Prize woke me up from childhood and made me confront the reality that being black meant more than the civil rights movement, but that it meant that the civil rights movement was not over and that the struggle for racial equality and for social justice didn't end in the 60s, but that there was more work that needed to be done and it was up to me to make sure that the work was finished. So I believe that's where the formulation of my career goal of being a civil rights attorney, I think a combination of factors, the environment that I grew up in, planted the seed for my career goal. I knew by watching the eyes on the prize that when my mind drifted back 30 years, that even in the 1990s in South Carolina, that courage could land you dead. That if you stood up in the wrong venue or at the wrong forum and began to speak about racial justice and the, uh, the inequalities that took place and that were still taking place, that there could be retaliation against you physically or even economically, even in the 90s. I was keenly aware of that as a child growing up into manhood. This black awareness was shaped also 
by the contributions of the elders who've left a powerful love legacy for me and my siblings, and I speak their names. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Evelyn Finch, Vassina Tisdale, Fulton Tisdale, and my oldest living relative, my Aunt Minnie Tomlin. Last week, I published a survey to my social network to learn about the experiences my fellow black brothers have had with law enforcement. I have had so many run-ins with law enforcement as a black young man, particularly as a motorist driving in rural areas of the South and along the interstate in the South and in the Northeast. Some of the encounters were good or not objectionable and other encounters were horrific. So in this survey, I wanted to begin humanizing our stories so that we can begin to develop a narrative to share with the younger generations. This survey was inspired by the sickening murder of George Floyd at the hands of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Shelvin and three of his colleagues who committed this horrendous and heinous act of violence against Mr. Floyd on May 25th, 2020, about two weeks ago. The response to the survey so far has been amazing. Brothers from all over the country have answered several questions. And one of the prompts that I asked simply requested the brothers to define in their own words, home training. So when I reviewed the results, I found that our definitions were very, very diverse, ranging from a neutral set of values that their parents enforced to a code of conduct that was required of each child in the household to avoid embarrassing the family in public spaces up to a race-specific warning to avoid judgment by on-looking white people. I know we all have a version of home training, but the range was remarkable in my review of the survey results. There was a neutral version of of home training. Then there was a more general anti-embarrassment strain of home training. And then there was the don't embarrass me in front of the white people version of the home training. Very, very interesting. There is no right or wrong answer to what is home training because I feel strongly that the diversity and the response is conditioned on the environment, on the values and the culture of each family and each household. But in my experience, home training for me growing up was an ongoing course that began with corrective action, such as timeouts and stern talking to, 
which was then put on a disciplinary warning system with escalating consequences up to and including what they called in the South a behind cutting. <laughs> that was the preferred way of describing the unleashing of the terror or the unveiling of the highly feared belts. So as I entered high school, the home training program that I was on rewarded me for good grades and good behavior and good character with freedoms such as hanging out with friends, going to parties, going to dances, and even driving. It was such a privilege to be able to drive a car to school as a junior and as a senior. However, I was still eligible for whoopings as a high school senior, depending on the infraction. I would venture to say that I'm still eligible for one if I do something bad enough. Remember the fear of God we had of our parents? But my home training, more than anything, came from the context of scripture. So oftentimes before one of those behind curtains that I would get, I would get a talking to and the scripture was read. So it reads as simply as spoil the rod, spoil the child, spare the rod, spoil the child. But I wanted to get the more uh, reader friendly or listener friendly version of Proverbs 13, 24. And Proverbs 13, 24 reads, he who withholds the rod of discipline hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines and trains him diligently and appropriately with wisdom and love. That's the way Proverbs 13 reads, Proverbs 13 and 24 in the Amplified Bible. That's how it reads. And I'm not advocating that parents should resort to corporal punishment or using a belt or an object because some of us got belts, some of us got talking to, some of us got switches, some of us got grounded. That's up to the parent to decide. But this is my home training. And my home training was balanced scripture and societal statistics. My parents had a heightened awareness of the school to jail pipeline. And no, that was not a term that we had at the time, but the statistics for black boys in our local school district were undeniable. Black boys were punished, disciplined, and put in detention and special education, which was segregation, and also suspended and expelled at far higher rates than white boys. So right now in the survey, I see a 73% yes that parents gave respondents the talk about being a black male as early as seven years old. As early as seven years old, black parents have given their male children the talk about what it means to be a black male. I remember getting the talk and I remember feeling a heaviness hit my chest because it felt like my innocence 
was taken away from me, that I was going to be seen as some monster or that I was going to be seen as something that I wasn't and that I had to do extra work to counteract uh, a presumption of criminality or a presumption that I was a bad person, that the stereotypes were going to meet me at the same time as my name. Trevor the black kid or Trevor the black boy and the negative stigma that was attached to it in my local area. 73% of the respondents in the survey responded that they received the talk. So my bonus father, Richard Sr., was a career police officer. That's where he met my mom on the force. And he would always tell me that he was not going to allow me to fall through the cracks. So for many years, I wondered, what exactly does it mean to fall through the cracks? I had no idea. All I knew was that the floors at our house didn't have any cracks or holes in it. But I soon found out exactly what he meant. As I transitioned from middle to high school, I realized that I was beginning to lose many of my buddies who I played with on the playground in elementary school. I was losing them to expulsions and other disciplinary issues, perhaps even extensions of problems within their own lives. And I was also losing my black friends to academic tracking. It seemed like gradually students were being segregated by academic performance as well as behavior. And it felt like we were being tracked from middle school all the way through high school. That there were some of my friends that I never had a class with from sixth grade through 12th grade. Never had, unless it was an elective, never had an academic class with them. And that bothered me. It really, it bothered me. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was keenly aware that my classes were not representative of the school's demographic which was about 50-50. Our city and our high school was 50% black and 50% white, roughly. There was probably a small percentage of other ethnicities and races, maybe less than 2%. And so it was a school that was split black and white equally. So I felt separated from many of my friends from elementary school, I went to a predominantly black elementary school. I was separated from them throughout the school day and throughout high school in a very pronounced but unspoken way. No one explained to, to me as a black kid in certain classes why I was the minority, the extreme minority, when I really wasn't in the general population of the school. There was never a conversation about that. In fact, the majority of the teachers that I had from kindergarten through 12th grade 
were white women. But the good part was, and the saving grace was, that my home training was reinforced by my parents and the village that supported them. My home training reinforced the education and extracurricular activities I participated in at school through programs like ROTC, the Boys and Girls Club, Vacation Bible School, Community Choirs, and even my first job. The home training responded to everything that I was doing so that I had a holistic support system in every lane of my life, academic to first job, from track and field to ROTC. There was a partnership between the home and the school and the others supporting activities. Today, I feel that my home training serves me equally as my formal education. My mother would often pray with me and always tell me before I went off to school, remember to love, share, and care. I can hear her voice now. Remember to love, share, and care. A powerful affirmation. And her little reminder has stuck with me for decades even as I leave home for work before the pandemic hit, for ministry assignments and community service, or even to get into my car and drive in hostile Bay Area traffic. Remember to love, share, and care. I have a few questions that I'd like to ask, and these questions are really a call to action for home training. What can we tell our sons and daughters every day with our words and with our actions as they walk out into a world that criminalizes their skin and features as inherently dangerous. What can we tell our sons and daughters? What can we demonstrate? Second question, what can we tell our black and brown children about a world not equipped to offer them equal opportunity or rehabilitation or forgiveness when they make an honest mistake. And my third question, how can our home training equip the next generation to fight for freedom and justice from a biblical perspective with a heart of compassion and empathy? I wanna read 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 in the God's Word translation, and it reads, however, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, search for me, and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their country. I believe that if we are not connecting God's love for all people to our home training, to our activism, and to our protest against America's original sin, the sin of racism, then I'm afraid that we're setting our babies up for failure and irrevocable disappointment. Before we go, I wanted to just quickly expound on 
Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Simple formula that I like to use to keep this scripture at the top of my consciousness. Number one, prayer activates God's hand in our lives. Secondly, a humble heart and attitude signals our dependency on God's omnipotence, on his power, on his strength, and on his might. Thirdly, an effective prayer acknowledges that we fell short and have not lived up to our end of the bargain all the time. And then finally, fourth, repenting requires us to turn away from unloving attitudes and disobedient actions and then activating our God consciousness, which will cause God himself to act on our behalf in any situation or circumstance or even system, including racist policies, police departments, and culture. Thanks again for joining this episode of Left on Red, thought-provoking commentary by Trevor Cooper. I hope that you are enlightened, challenged, and maybe even inspired if you would like to connect with me on social media, then please find me on Facebook at Trevor A. Cooper or on Instagram at Mr. Trevor. And that's M-I-S-T-E-R-T-R-E-V-O-R. To find out more about the ministry, please go on over to www.impactfellowshipchurch.org. Until next week, be well, be wise and be nice. God bless.